Well, if I were to ask you uh, what you thought the greatest dilemma facing humanity is, what would your answer be? The greatest dilemma, the greatest struggle that we have facing us, would it be terrorism? Would it be racism? Would it be inequality? Would it be global warming? Would it be lack of, of gun restraint? Would it be unjust suffering? What, what do you think is the greatest dilemma facing man? You know, I would imagine if you're perhaps not super religious, you might think that answers might be along the line of technological advance, uh, perhaps uh, emission control, gun control, equality, better education, uh, medical advances. Perhaps that would be an answer for you. Uh, it is for many. You know, Mark Zuckerberg, the co-founder and CEO of Facebook, uh, he and his wife had a son, and he wrote a letter to the son, and the letter was posted on the Internet. It's a, it's a, a letter from a father and a mother to a, a child that they have high hopes for. And, and in his letter, he kind of explains how he looks for the world to get better. How do we face these struggles in life? He says this, While headlines often focus on what's wrong, in many ways the world is getting better. I'm taking a piece out of his letter. Health is improving. Poverty is shrinking. Knowledge is growing. People are connecting. Technological advance in every field means your life should be dramatically better than ours today. Medicine has only uh, been a real science for less than 100 years, and we've already seen complete cures for some diseases and good progress for others. As technology accelerates, we have a real shot at preventing, curing, managing all or most of the rest in the next 100 years. He goes, our hopes for your generation focus on two ideas, advancing human potential and promoting equality. So in his view, uh, and he's a loving parent just like us, in his view, these two things are what he pins his hope on to deliver us from this dilemma that we all face called human life. Now, maybe if you're not, maybe if you're more religious, you would look at other alternatives to move us through this dilemma in life. Maybe you'd look for moving back to traditional values, making America great, putting the Ten Commandments on a uh, federal building, perhaps saying Merry Christmas or getting prayer back in school. Those might be to you things that we need to do to, to deal with this dilemma called human life. Well, I think the scripture speaks a little differently to it. Uh, the scripture really speaks to sin as this fundamental struggle that we have, this alienated relationship with God. Uh, otherwise, if that's not the case, how do we deal with when God chooses to send a servant, he's going to send one that is explained as he is in our text. You know, in, John, in John's gospel... He's trying to identify Jesus for us. He wants us to know not just who has come, but why he has come. And in our passage today, we're going to see two fundamental truths of why we celebrate Christmas, why Jesus Christ has come. Number one would be that he's the Lamb of God. And he's the Lamb of God, as we've been singing, who takes away the sins of the world. In other words, Jesus has come as a Lamb to reconcile us to God, to bring forgiveness 
to bring about the restoration of a fractured relationship. That's the first reason that John's going to say that Jesus has come. Secondly, that he's come as the Son of God. That, that he's come as God's very own Son. He's been anointed with the Spirit of God, and he's going to bring about making us new. Dealing with the dilemma of life is going to be by making us different. Beginning this process of recreating us into the image that we were originally created in. That's the goal of Christ. It's a colossal goal to both bring about forgiveness, the washing away of sins, the cleansing of, a, of just a broken people, and yet the changing of a people from glory to glory to glory. So turn with me, if you will, to John chapter 1. I'll read verses 29 through 34. John 1, 29 through 34. Remember, we're speaking about John the Evangelist here who has written this gospel, and the subject at the beginning will be John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah, two different men. The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. So two, two things, two major foundational stones for you regarding your understanding of Christmas is he's come as the Lamb of God, and he's come as the Son of God. Two things I want you to remember. Okay, first though, let's look at the Lamb of God. Now, he says in our text the next day, well, that presumes what happened the day before. Well, the day before, you, we didn't read this, it's in verses 19 uh, through 28, what happened is John, the gospel writer, kind of zeroes in on this man named John the Baptist. And he looks at him, and in the previous passage, uh, John the Baptist is being confronted by the religious leadership from Jerusalem. So these religious leaders come out to John the Baptist, and they want to know, what is he doing? They're kind of interrogating him. They're kind of questioning him. What are you doing out here? Now, uh, of course, John the Baptist, he's just out in the desert. He's just preaching. So what would draw these religious leaders, these sophisticated, educated people, to come take issue with some desert preacher that's just wearing camel's hair and he's eating crazy food and he's out there preaching about judgments come and you've got to repent and you've got to be baptized? He says the axe is already at the root of the tree. In other words, trouble's already coming. So what would drive them out there? Well, a couple of things. John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry, was exploding Number one. Number two, he looked really alarmingly like Elijah. He looked really close to him. Elijah was, was a man like him, wearing crazy clothes, eating crazy food, preaching really bold messages out in the desert. And, and these religious leaders knew that last book of the Bible, Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, he says, Behold, I will send Elijah 
before that great and awesome day of the Lord. So they're thinking, we've got to check this out. Is he really some eschatological prophet? Is he some end-time figure? And so they go out there and they begin to question him. Who are you? Are you the Christ? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? That is the prophet from Deuteronomy 18. And John says, nope, immediately denies it. Immediately says, no way. But one is coming after me who is worthier than me. I'm not even worthy to untie the sandal of his shoe. In other words, if you see me equivalent to the light of a candle, 10,000 suns are coming. 10,000. The brilliance of 10,000 suns are coming. That's the difference between me and this one that comes. So that's the scene that takes place right before our passage. Then he says the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him. So there's John continuing to preach and and continuing to baptize. And he sees Jesus and he says, behold the Lamb of God. Now he's saying behold. In other words, pay attention. Listen up. Contemplate. Consider it. This is overwhelming. Behold this Lamb comes. Now it's a Lamb from God. So, So the Lamb is of God or belongs to God or has come from God. In other words, God's Lamb has been sent to us. And this had to be an incredibly defining moment. He says here, I myself didn't know him. Well, John the Baptist did. They were cousins. They weren't raised together in the same part of Israel, but they didn't know each other. But John's saying, I didn't know him as the lamb. So why would he call him a lamb? Well, you've been reading with me, and you've been hearing us go through this series, God does truth in patterns. You know, when you look in the Old Testament, John is assuming we're students of the Old Testament. I mean, people, it is very difficult to mine the depth of the New Testament with scant knowledge of the Old Testament. We keep dipping back into the Old Testament to try to understand what in the world is going on. Well, John assumes we're students of the Old Testament, and God in the Old Testament weaves threads throughout to help us understand what's taking place in Christ. And one of those threads is this idea of a sacrificial system, particularly sacrificing of lambs, sacrificing of animals, as a substitute before God. For example, let me just give you a few. Um, You would think of perhaps Genesis 22 with Abraham. When God was testing Abraham, he said, go sacrifice your son on Mount Moriah. And so they're going there, and Abraham's obeying God. He brings his son Isaac, and Of course, Isaac's carrying the wood, and he says, hey, where's the sacrifice? Not knowing it was to be him. And Abraham says, the Lord will provide a lamb for us. So then you just kind of go fast forward a little bit to Exodus chapter 12, when Moses is delivering the people out out of slavery in Egypt. And what does he tell them before that final miracle where God demonstrates his glory and power by bringing down the firstborn of Egypt? He says, you take the blood of a sacrificed lamb and you smear it on the doorposts of your home. And God will pass over you. Hence, it's called Passover. Or perhaps in Exodus 29, when Moses was commanding the people, he says, every day, every morning, and every evening, you sacrifice a lamb. So throughout the history of Israel, the the, the sacrificing of lambs, was indicating this this idea of a substitute in being reconciled to God. They would have known that. I mean, the writer of you know Isaiah in his fifty third chapter. This had to influence the writing. You know, Isaiah in fifty three speaks about the servant of God that comes. 
And the servant of God that comes is going to bear the sins of men and women. In fact, here's what he writes. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. It's a picture of the servant of God called a lamb. So when you trace this idea of lambs through the Old Testament, you begin to see a picture emerging. And when John then says, behold the Lamb of God, that's the freight that's going to help them understand John's expression. He's the Lamb. So all these lambs and animals that were sacrificed, they were all just prefiguring a perfect Lamb to come. A perfect sacrifice that would bear the sins. They were all in anticipation of what was to come. They were all the shadows until the substance comes. That's exactly, see, behold the Lamb of God. Here is the one that they helped us understand. These lambs, you know, when a lamb was slaughtered, the priest would put his, his hand on the lamb and slaughter the lamb. Sins being transferred to the lamb. The lamb was bearing the penalty. The lamb was bearing the sin of the people. The lamb bore the cost of my sin. And then he says, behold the Lamb of God. That's what he's driving at. And that's why he says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now notice, he takes it away. Now you may be thinking, well, hold on, I see plenty of sin in me. I still see plenty of sin in you. What does he mean by he takes it away? Well, that word means to bear. He's bearing the weight of the sin. John Calvin, great reformer of the 16th century, said it this way. He says that it's Jesus taking on himself the load of our sin that weighed us down and carried it on the cross. He says our chastisement or punishment of our sin was laid on him for him to bear. So while sin yet remains in us, the punishment of the sin, the penalty of the sin has been borne by Christ. So here's the point. Jesus has come as the lamb to bear our sin for us instead of us in place of us. In lieu of us, he has come to bear. But he's come to bear, do you notice, the sin of the world. It's singular. It's not plural. He's not talking about just the individual sins that we commit, although it includes those. He's talking about the sin. In other words, the core of our being, you know, that sin nature, the, the darkened part of our lives that no matter how much we s- seek self-reformation, we sin. The sin of the world. It goes beyond Israel. It's not just Israel. It's the world. He takes away the sin of the world. Now, don't please, don't let your mind move too quickly down the track and think, well, then everybody's going to be saved. Then even people that don't want to be forgiven will be forgiven because, look, he takes away all the sin of the world. He's not speaking about that. It's more of showing the comprehensive breadth of God's salvation. There is no race There is no ethnicity, there's no nationality, there's no socioeconomic position that doesn't stand to be served by this great Lamb of God. Remember in verse 12 of the first chapter, whoever believes in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. There is no people group excluded from his mercy. Well, this is pretty incredible. Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. I mean, mean, this this is startling in our in our time, to consider that he would bear these things for us. 
Now, I, I know this doesn't resonate with all of us. You know, in a recent poll of Americans, only 17% of people understand sin as an offense against God. We understand how it may offend one another, our sins, but only 17% say it's against God. So a message like this might not resonate with some of you here because you're thinking, well, what's God got against me? I mean, Jesus is coming to take the sins of the world. I mean, what's the big deal? I mean, we, don't, we don't feel the press. But, but I think you'd agree with me, even if you're not a Christian here, I think our brokenness is self-evident, isn't it? I, I mean, isn't there a sense of generation upon generation you can call it the law of the jungle. You can call it selfishness. Whatever you want to term it, doesn't it seem generationally that we are self-destructive? I mean, not just on a global scale. We're seeing quite a bit of that now. But, but even on a personal scale. There's a certain self-destructiveness that no matter how hard you try, you cannot seem to avoid giving offense. I mean, we know that. I, I think there's a certain sense that we know we have broken rank with some form of creator, whatever you may define that as. I mean, I think about all the religions of the world. Do you realize that all the pagan religions of the world, they all have some form of atonement. They all have some form of sacrifice. You may sacrifice a person, may sacrifice an animal, may sacrifice crops. But, but there's a certain dread that we all have. There's a certain sense of, I ought to have done that and I didn't. Or I shouldn't have done that and I did. You know, there's that sense of dread that we all feel that somehow we are not in concert with a creator. That's really the nature of sin. You know, I think we like to define sin as just not doing this and not doing this and not doing this, or I did this and I did this. Sin is much more simple and yet complex than that. Uh, simple in the sense that I wouldn't look at sin first as simple rule-breaking. I'd look at it as a posture away from God, that we live lives with little regard for him. John Piper, modern theologian, wrote this definition of sin, and I find it to be very helpful. He says, law-breaking is not the essence of evil. Desiring anything above God is the essence of evil, before any commands were given. One reason this is important to know is it will affect the way you pursue change. If you think the essence of your evil is commandment breaking, then your focus for change will be commandment keeping. And this is doomed to fail for two reasons. If we're good at it, we think we've changed, but the essence of evil remains. If we can't get good at it, we despair and quit trying. But if we know that the essence of our evil is not commandment breaking, but preferring anything to God, then our focus for change will be a change of heart. That is hopeful because God promised I'll remove the heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh. I mean, this is why Jesus doesn't go after the symptoms. This is why fixing terrorism, racism, and inequality, while those things may be very good things to do, they don't change the calculus. It's still within us. Now, if you're Christian here, this is why we sing joy to the world. Because one has come, a land has come to take away your sin, to remove from you the guilt and the stain, that all those things you ought to have done that you didn't, and all those things that you did that you ought not to have done have been taken away. It's a point of great rejoicing. 
that the very Son of God would take on flesh and become a lamb, as it were. This is incredible to think that you're forgiven, to think that you have been reconciled to God through his sacrifice. Now listen, he did not come to just simply display a love. He didn't come to show God's anger at sin, simply put. He came to reconcile us to God. That is where our faith is to be rooted. Justification by faith. We're justified by our faith being placed in the one who has come. Remember, Genesis 2, men and women were with God. There was no sacrifice. Genesis 3 and onward, there is sacrifice because of sin. Our faith has to be rooted in Christ. That's how we become a Christian. This is what we call justification. But let's not stop here. I think this is where many of us kind of park the gospel bus. We just stop at this place. In fact, Dallas Willard in his book, Divine Conspiracy, uh, speaks about the bumper sticker. Perhaps you've seen it. Uh, The Christians aren't perfect. They're just forgiven, is what the bumper sticker will say. Well, that's, that's half right, but it makes it almost wrong. Yet we are forgiven, but don't stop there. Many of us do. We think, well, I've received Christ. I've been forgiven. Well, that's true. Christ does bring forgiveness. That's what the Lamb of God has done. But there's more. There's more that he has come to do. And for many of us that have been raised in evangelicalism, this is what we think the gospel is. But John doesn't stop there. We shouldn't stop there. In other words, Jesus hasn't just come to justify us. He's come to sanctify us. He hasn't just come to cleanse us. He's come to change us. I mean, mean, there's a whole other part of the story. Look with me back in 32. In 32, John says, and John bore witness. So John the evangelist is speaking about John the Baptist. And he says, John the Baptist is giving testimony. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him. I've explained that. But he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So you see what John's doing? John the Baptist is giving testimony that Jesus is not just the Lamb of God, but he's the Son of God. And we know he's the Son of God because the Spirit rested on him. Listen, John's giving testimony in two ways. He said, I saw it. And when he said, I saw it, that Greek word is the bodily seeing. It's not some prophetic vision. Nobody else can confirm. He saw a dove came down and rest upon him. But he just didn't see it. He also heard God speak to him. The one upon whom you see the Spirit descend, he will baptize with the Spirit. Now, why is this important? Well, because God in the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would come and the Messiah would be known as having the Spirit and he would bring about justice to the nations. There's a number of scriptures. Let me read for you one in Isaiah chapter eleven, uh, Isaiah chapter 42. He says, Behold my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen one, in whom my soul delights. You kind of hear the baptismal language that God used with Jesus. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So this servant that would come from God would be anointed with the Spirit and would bring justice to the nations. He's going to bring about a change. He's going to bring a new day. He's going to bring a new heir. He's going to bring about a new kingdom. He's going to reverse all the things that sin brought into this world. That the coming of the Spirit was evidence that God was doing a work of undoing what sin has done. We see these promises in Joel 2.28 where you read, 
We read that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, Isaiah 44. I'll pour out my spirit upon your offspring, my blessing on your descendants. So what John is saying is, I've seen him, I'm testifying to you, this son of God, he has the spirit, he's inaugurating a new age. We saw it in his ministry. If you were to keep reading through the Gospel of John, he would begin doing miracle after miracle after miracle, showing that I am undoing that which sin has warped. I'm unwarping life. I'm bringing about a new order. The world is groaning for redemption. You are groaning, or should be groaning. When will he change me to be back into the full image of Christ? This is what Jesus inaugurated. He started it, and we knew it because he was anointed with the Spirit. But there's even more than that. He's going to begin to change us. So he hasn't just come to cleanse us, he's come to change us. In other words, he speaks about that Jesus will baptize us with the Spirit. Now, I don't want to get into the debate just yet over this baptism taking place at conversion or the baptism taking place in a Pentecostal way, a post-conversion, evidence by tongues. I would hold to the former view, but I don't even want to speak about it. I just want you thinking, Jesus has come with power to baptize with the Spirit. That's why he's contrasting with John's baptism. John's baptism is with water, and it's kind of a negative baptism. The water washes sin away from you but it doesn't give anything to you. Jesus bestows the Spirit unto you. It's a gift that he's giving us the Spirit, which means he's going to give us new life. This is what changes you. Christian, it isn't you just thinking, I believe in Jesus now, now I'm going to try harder, and I'm going to be better at it. That's not what's happening. That's not the New Testament teaching. The New Testament teaching is you come to faith in Christ, and Jesus baptizes you with the Spirit, and then you're given new life to live differently. Listen, the Spirit does this because Jesus has said it. It's no different than in Genesis chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, the Spirit of God, it's, it's the breath of God. In Hebrew, the word is the same for breath and spirit. The breath of God breathes into the dirt and animates a living creature out of it. Now the Spirit of God breathes life into us and wakes us up to the glory of Christ. No man, no woman can come to an understanding of the glory of the Lamb of God apart from the Spirit of God given by the Son of God. I mean, in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul makes this clear. He says, therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says, Jesus is accursed. In other words, if you have the Spirit of God, you can never curse Christ. In fact, he says, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit. Nobody can say he is truly the Lord of heaven and earth apart from the Spirit of God. So the Spirit is giving life to us. A.W. Tozer, a a theologian of the mid-20th century, uh, speaks about the difference between light and sight. And here's what he says. Religious instruction, however sound, is not enough by itself. It brings light but it cannot impart sight. The assumption that light and sight are synonymous has brought spiritual tragedy to millions. The Pharisees looked straight at the light of the world for three years, but not one ray of light reached their inner being. Light is not enough. The inward operation of the Holy Spirit is necessary to saving faith. The gospel is light, but only the Spirit can give sight. So that's why Jesus, this is why it's so important. He just hasn't come in to take sins from us, but to give sight to us so that we can see Christ. 
And with the coming of the Spirit, we're just not made new. We're made new to opening our eyes to Christ. But the Spirit of God also mediates the presence of God to us. The Spirit of God confirms to us that we are a child of God. You know, if you're a Christian, you know that inner sense of he knows me. He loves me. This is right out of Romans. Romans chapter 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. There's this, there's this inner intuitive knowledge that I'm loved by God, and I'm known by God, and I'm a child of God. You can't, you can't fabricate this, and you can't create it. You can hug yourself, you can tell yourself anything you want. It doesn't stick, it doesn't remain. But, the, but this, this presence of his spirit confirming to us that we are his children is a mark of the Spirit. He doesn't just mediate God's presence. He brings us to a place of satisfaction and joy. The, the, the joy we have in Christ. You know, when we sing about Christ, when you hear about Christ, and you feel your souls lifted up, when you, when you were singing, Behold the Lamb of God, and you're caught up with, Yes, I'm beholding. He takes away, and you feel your heart just strangely encouraged. This is the Spirit of God doing this. In John 16, Jesus said, the Spirit will glorify me. The Spirit is going to help you glorify Christ. The Spirit is so humble. He's in the background. That's why in Revelation chapter 5, you see God on the throne. You see the Lamb next to him, and we're worshiping, saying, worthy, worthy is the Lamb who was slain with his blood. He purchased men and women for God. That's the Father and the Son. Where's the Spirit? The Spirit is within us, encouraging us to give glory to the Father and to the Son. That's the presence of the Spirit. That's what Jesus has come to do, to bring the Spirit so that we know we're children. Well, we have new life. We know we're children. We're finding joy. We're glorifying Christ. But not just that. The Spirit is the one that helps us to keep the words of God. You know how Jesus said, he brought up in in Matthew chapter 7 at the very end, he says, whoever hears the words of mine and doesn't do them, he builds his house on the sand. When the storm comes, the house is toast. But whoever hears the words of mine and does them will be like the house, the Built upon the rock, when the storms and the winds come, it stands and stands strong. How do we do these words of Jesus? That seems to me pretty important that we want to do those words. I mean, if you hear the words, and that's all you're you're going to walk out of here, you're going to hear the words, and that's it? Well, you got sand for a foundation. But if you hear the words and you do them, then you got rock for a foundation. How do we do them? Well, the Spirit of God leads us to it. We see this even in the promise in Ezekiel, where he says, I'll put my Spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And be careful to obey my rules. He's helping us. The Spirit of God enables us to turn away from sin. Not every time, but where we sin, we repent. You know, th- th- this is an incredible. You know, I have a friend back in Maryland who is, um, he has a lot of issues moving in his life right now. He has some marital struggles. He has financial struggles. He has other relational dynamics that are problematic. And yet he keeps turning back to, I'm going to rejoice in God. I'm going to walk by faith. A lot of pressure, a lot of pressure. He keeps moving by faith. Perfect no, but consistent yes. He keeps moving by faith. Trusting the Spirit of God to enable him to do what he knows he has no power to do. It isn't a pretty work. It's not clean it's not, it's not without error and without stumbling, without tripping, but it's a persevering and it's a changing from glory to glory to glory. That's what we're speaking about here. 
Jesus has come both to behold, to be the Lamb, to take away our sins, but to furnish us, to baptize us with the Spirit, that we might change from glory to glory. That's the goal of the Christian life. Not just forgiveness, but to become like Christ. Now, now how do we hear this as a church? You know, I, I want you to put on a corporate ear for a minute. I don't want you just to look at yourself. I want you to look at us as a group of children of God. And what this looks like is... Um, Really, this group of people loving each other, sacrificing for each other, serving one another, not perfectly, but moving in ways that are becoming more and more Christ-like. So that when people see the church, do you realize that really the church is the primary representation of God to the world? We are. We are the primary face of God. We are little Christ. Christ came to explain him, and now we Christians are coming to reveal him and to display his glory. That's our call. And the Spirit of God is necessary in the way we handle each other, the way we love each other. The church is going to be displaying God to the world. And we need the Spirit for that. So how do we engage this? I I said he, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's reconciled us. He is the Son of God who's baptized us with the Spirit that we might be made new. And folks, this is why, again, I always encourage you, know your own personal history. I can look at my life. Carol and I can look at our marriage. You know, we're going to be celebrating 30 years of marriage. Wow. 30 years of marriage. It has gone by like 30 days. Uh, And they've been 30 great days. Um, They have. I, I mean, it has been... Incredible, but we look back over the marriage and we think where he's drawn us from, where we could have gone. We do this often. Why? Because he's changed us. I'm the, I am, you talk to, don't talk to my mother actually, but if you were to talk to my mother, uh, you would find he's a very different man. He's a very different man because the Spirit of God moves in us and begins to change us from glory to glory. Okay, so how do, we, how do we embrace this? How do we grab this? Well, the first thing, I just want to give you four things to consider, kind of in the form of an application. Number one would be that we have to acknowledge our sin before God. Now, what I mean by that, I don't mean by that. I don't mean that you say, yeah, the world's got problems. I don't mean by that that you've got some problems. What I mean by that is that you are the problem. That the problem is you, the problem is me. There's this deep recognition that within myself is the inability to ever measure up or perform enough that God would look at me and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. That will never come to me in my own value and worth and effort. In other words, if you don't see the nature of your own sin, you're not going to glorify a sin bearer. If he's just a helper to you, then you treat him like the help. But if he's a rescuer, a deliverer, then you treat him differently. This is why Robert Murray McShane, a great Scottish preacher in the 19th century, he said, it's only the broken-hearted sinner who can receive a crucified Savior. Nobody wants a crucified Savior if they think they're bringing metal to the table. But if you're a broken-hearted sinner, you know you've got nothing. 
then a crucified Savior becomes very glorious to you. This is what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 3, and 4. The whole, the kind of the gate to the Beatitudes, the gate to the kingdom of God. What's the gate say? The two, the two poles holding the gate? Blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In other words, to be poor in spirit means that you know, spiritually speaking, you don't have it. You're poverty. You, you got nothing. You don't have the ability. Poor in spirit, for you I have the kingdom of heaven. The very next beatitude, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. They're mourning over their sin, so the cross is very comforting. If you know that you're a sinner, and God says, I will forgive you in Christ, that comforts. If you don't think you're that bad, then the comfort of God is minimal for you. So think about that. I mean, this idea, we have to acknowledge our sin. Can you acknowledge it? You know, many people in the culture today think speaking about sin and depravity is, is a downer. It ruins our, our self-image. Well, I, I want to, for your sake, ruin your self-image if it's built on yourself. I, I want to. Because apart from this, Apart from understanding this truth of your sin, you'll never love Christ. You'll never, he'll never be the desire of the nations that don't need him. Do you, do you acknowledge your sin? Not, not that you err and not that you fail. Do you acknowledge that apart from Christ you have no hope? He's the hope of glory. Until you come to that place, Christianity is away from you. If you come to that place and, and you acknowledge it before him and confess, think about the, I think about, and, and this is how you know, you, you tend to be less concerned with other people when you acknowledge your own sin. When you don't acknowledge your own sin, boy, you've got like microscopes on the sins of others. I mean, you can see them. So you have the tax collector in Luke 15. And in Luke 15, this tax collector is a Pharisee in the temple and a tax collector. And the Pharisee, he's looking all around at everybody else and he's thinking about how thankful he is that he's not like them. The tax collector, he wanted to get close to the, to the temple. He's as far back as he can and he's beating his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Have mercy on me, a sinner. He's not looking at anybody. He's aware of his own sin and that brings him to a place of confession. So the first thing is acknowledge your sin. Secondly, it would be to behold the Lamb, to behold Him. And when I say behold the Lamb, I'm talking resting, looking, enjoying, being thankful to Him, placing your faith in Him, resting all your hope in Him. Again, John Calvin wrote this um, regarding the beholding. He said, um, He leaves no other refuge for sinners than to flee to Christ, by which He overturns all satisfactions and purifications and redemptions invented by men. Let me explain what he's saying. He leaves nor the refuge. In other words, many times he overturns satisfactions and purifications and redemptions invented by men. You know how we try all these self-salvation projects? Well, I'm going to try harder this year, and I'm going to give this up. We have all these forms of atonement. We have all these forms of sacrifice that we think if we do these things then God will somehow find me pleasurable. And, and what he's saying is, is, no, no, no. There is no other refuge for sinner than to flee to Christ. So, But to, 
To behold Christ is to flee to him, to, to rush to him, to seek his forgiveness and his mercy and his grace. That's what we're called to do, to flee to Christ. Have you, have you fleed to Christ? You've acknowledged your sin. Have you run to him? That's the next step in walking by faith, beholding Christ, contemplating Christ. How often, you know, I often will measure, so I'll, I'll be in a conversation with a person. I don't do this all the time, so don't think I'd do it if I talk to you after the service. But, but oftentimes I'll measure a conversation, the value of it is, I walk away with how much did I remember about the person I just spoke to? If I didn't learn anything, I just talked too much. I just talked about myself. But, but, but if I left the conversation knowing I know this, 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 th- then I've listened well. If I haven't, I haven't listened well. How much do you think about Christ? How much do you behold Christ? How much of your day do you ever contemplate? Do you ever think? Does your, your mind move there to think about all that he is, all that he's done, all that he will do, all that he'll be for us forever? He'll forever be the eternal son, advocating and pleading and, and advocating our lives before God. How often do you think about him? Is it something that is, is it a content of your conversation or even your own, between your ears, the conversation you have with yourself? I mean, measure, measure yourself. I don't want to, I don't bring this up so you walk out and I don't think about Jesus enough. I'm not looking to do that. I'm looking to give you a measurement. That's all. And, and, and to move and to profit by it. Okay, the second thing, the third thing I would say is celebrate this Lamb of God. To celebrate him, rejoice over the forgiveness. I mean, be thankful that guilt has been taken away. Be grateful that shame has been removed from you. Listen, every single one of us in this room has issues that would be embarrassing to make public. Right? We do. I do. You do. And yet every sin was laid on him. He bore our shame. He bore our sin. He bore the wrath with it. Rejoice in that. Now, I recognize what what works against our celebration is our continual sin and the things that we do today, tonight, tomorrow, next week. But what I want to remind you is that that his his work of being a lamb is ongoing. Not that he's saving us and saving us. He's justified us. We're declared innocent. But his constant intercession before the Father for us. In other words, there's an ongoing work. J.C. Rowell, another great a British pastor in London in the mid-19th century, he says this, he says, the ministry of Christ is perpetual and unwearied. He takes away sin. He is daily taking it away from everyone that believes on him, daily purging, cleansing, washing the souls of his people, daily granting and applying fresh supplies of mercy. He did not cease to work for his saints when he died for them on the cross. He lives in heaven as a priest to present his sacrifice continually before God. In grace as well as in providence, Christ works still. He is ever taking sin. So when you sin, you know that in Hebrews 7, he is our high priest interceding for us, reminding the Father, I've died for him. I've died for that. And receive that as just a a fresh forgiveness by God. don't, Don't think... Well, when he died 2,000 years ago, and here I'm doing it. No, no, no. He's applying these mercies that he's acquired for us every day. You need to remind yourself of that. That'll bring back a fresh dose of joy. Let the sin bring conviction, and then go picture Jesus. Hebrews 7, interceding for us. Father, I died for that. Father, I died for that. Constantly applying his merits on our behalf. 
Can you rejoice with me over that? I mean, can you thank him for that? I mean, can that not bring a measure of joy and all the glitter and the tinsel of this time? This is why he came. This is why he came. And then last, I would say this, that you would, you would deepen your desire to be filled with the Spirit. That you would be filled with the Spirit. Now what I mean by that is, is that you would be looking for the Spirit to change you. Don't be satisfied if you've asked Jesus in your heart. Be satisfied by the change that begins to occur through the power of the Spirit. When you get up in the morning, ask God, God, fill me with your Spirit. Change me by the power of your Spirit. God, give me desires. I, and and I, just as a homework for this afternoon, read Romans 8. Just even 1 to 11. Romans chapter 8, 1 to 11. It's beautiful about the Spirit of God working in us life and peace and righteousness. But seek a spirit. Folks, you do need to ask to be filled with the spirit. You can imagine yourself being filled, but we've got maybe some holes in the bucket. So, you know, we want to keep being filled with the spirit. We allow other things to intrude upon the presence of the spirit. Spirits quenched oftentimes by be filled with the spirit. In fact, let me just read you a scripture and then I'll close. Or let me give you a quote and a scripture. I got one here and I didn't want to forget it since I forgot the other one. Okay. He says this, God is present in power in the church, changing lives, enabling an obedience that would otherwise be unattainable. The Holy Spirit is not a theological abstraction, but it's a manifestation of God's presence in the community, making everything new. Those who respond to the gospel have entered the sphere of the Spirit's power where they find themselves changing and empowered for obedience. Seek the Spirit. So Paul writes in Ephesians 5, he says, look carefully how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Make the most of the time because the days are evil. We know that. We face a dilemma called human life. He says, make the most of your days because the days are evil. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of God is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs singing and making melody to the Lord, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So he says here, you live in evil days. We've always lived in evil. Are they evil? Yes, they are now. Have they been evil before? Absolutely. Living under Roman rule would have been horrendous. And living, living in the, the chaos of the world right now is greatly challenging. But he says, be filled with the Spirit. And then what Paul does, the days are evil, be filled with the Spirit, we're changing. But then Paul, if you were to read Romans, or sorry, if you were to move to Ephesians chapter 5, then go on to chapter 6, the Spirit affects your marriage, it affects your parenting, and it affects the workplace and community. So the Spirit of God is to be in us, changing us, day by day, from glory to glory. So let's just take a minute now. And think about Jesus as the Lamb of God who has taken away the sins of the world. You've been forgiven. You've been reconciled with God. He has come as the Son of God, baptizing us with the Spirit. So let's take a few minutes in silence. You may want to confess your sins. You may be convicted of them. Or you might want to receive the comfort and dwell upon the fresh mercies that are yours as Christ applies his merits uh, for your sake. And then an elder is going to close us in prayer.